This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Welcome to this very important episode. I am so, so excited to have Dr. Tasha Brown joining me today. So if you're listening to this episode, obviously early June, on May 25th, um, George Floyd died at the hands of a police officer. And this sparked outcry due to the races of George, who was a Black American, and the police officer, who was a white American. And it exposed what we have known for a very long time, uh, the racial injustices pre- present in America, especially in the Black American community, right? And these issues just were, you know, lifted the veil up once again, but it's not stuff that we never really, we've always known this was happening. And I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Tasha Brown um, because it's important that everyone listening to this, whether you're listening to it in June or two years from, you know, 2020, that you understand that these issues have been going on for centuries. Um, And it's important that we make an active effort to change the next generation and impact our children in a positive way. So Dr. Tasha Brown, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I am so excited. You know, we connected really kind of last minute in a way. I was like, you know, just looking for amazing people to just speak speak about these important issues. And I came across your Instagram. Um, And so for all of you listening, you should follow her, Dr period. So Dr. Dot Tasha is T-A-S-H-A Brown, B-R-O-W-N. Um, you need to follow her because just what she's giving to the Instagram space is so needed. Um, and I'm so excited you're here. So tell me more about your your degree and your position and what your passions are in your career as a clinical psychologist. Yes. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I currently practice in New York Um, In the daytime, my daytime job, I work at a major hospital here in New York City, 
And I do a couple of things. Uh, I'm a, based in a school-based mental health program because as mental health clinicians, we know the importance of making sure that mental health care is accessible, especially in communities of color, especially in low-income communities. And so the program that I work for through the hospital is very committed to um, the access to mental health care. So I see children in their school setting uh, for some days. And then I also work in the hospital setting with a program called Parent-Child Interaction Therapy uh, for children with significant behavioral um, disorders or concerns and their parents. It's really giving parents the skills to manage their behavior. And then I also have a private practice where I see a similar population um, here in New York City. And I'm really passionate about several things. I think a lot of my training was really focused on parent um, training and parent management training, which I'm really excited to talk to a group of parents um, and really talking about how as parents, you can learn skills to effectively help and manage your child's behavior and address mood concerns. Because I always tell this to my patients that um, you bring your child to a therapist or a psychologist once a week, they do all this amazing stuff with them and their like behavior is perfect, their mood is great. And then you go home with your child and you're still experiencing a lot of the same concerns and not having the tools to effectively manage it. And so my philosophy is really give parents the skills as much as possible so that they can be the, their child's therapist at home um, and that the child is getting what they need from the most important person in their life and the most consistent person in their life. And so a lot of my work is focused around what we call parent training and then also with children who are exhibiting um, behavioral difficulties, list, difficulties listening, significant temper tantrums that are leading to mood concerns, academic failure, and really giving them the coping strategies to navigate that. I I love another reason why I'm I'm loving that we connected is as a pediatrician, I I wish I could spend way more time with my patients and give them that sort of ment you know the mental health education that you just did. Just today I had the same conversation about a mother wanting to see a therapist and I gave her the referral and I said, "Mom though, I need you to understand that the work you do in the home is going to be even more important than what a therapist is going to do for you, right? Um, and you said that beautifully, that you're giving them the tools, giving families the tools to create, again, that permanent change. Not the, not the okay, let's just put a Band-Aid over it. You come to see me. It's the tools. And thank you so much for what you do, because I know it's not an easy job. No, um, I know that. I know that because I, I, I get that in my, you know, obviously as a, as a physician as well, I, I see that and I feel it every day. The, especially right now, I'm sure you're, you know, it's, it's really hard. I mean, the things yeah. going on and the community I work with as well is very much affected by this. And it's really hard to see this and obviously be strong and kind of be there with them. And I really, really sincerely appreciate you obviously taking the time again out of your day when I know you're dealing with a lot of stuff at work too. And yeah. personally as well, this is a yeah. lot going on for all of us right now. Yeah, definitely. That's the, and I've been talking with my colleagues about this throughout the week, what it means to be a mental health provider or a, a medical provider in spaces where you're giving. And then at the same time, having to process what's happening at, alongside with the people you're trying to do it with. And so, um, 
I think the focus on self-care, doing what you need to do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that when you do give to the people that you're serving, you're doing it from a space where your cup is at least half full. Um, but yet, and at the same time, acknowledging that it's a tough time for, for everyone. And it's, it's so, you know, the, obviously we had this pandemic. Um, I think people forgot about the COVID pandemic, which rightfully so. We have a major issue happening right now. And then the pandemic happened. And then obviously we're, we're now putting this to the forefront in terms of the racial injustices and um, all that's going on with George Floyd's um, murder, obviously. Um, he wasn't going to call it that. It was. So it's, it's crazy because I'm, 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 in a way, I'm so grateful to be in this space with you, you know, on social media to share such important things, right? The, the mental health, the physical health, all the things that the pandemic and these issues are bringing to light, that this is all really key. You know, all the fluff that people think about. And I, you know, I've watched, you know, social media influencers talking about all these different things that I'm like, you know, visual kind of superficial things in a way. The, this is the meat of living, right? We need to get into ways to be mentally capable of handling so many things, teaching our children and obviously staying healthy. And I, again, I'm so excited you're here. You know, what happened on May 25th and obviously the, the days that followed, it's very, very hard for a lot of parents to see. And it was hard for parents, but obviously, as we know, the children are, are even more affected by it um, just because they may have not seen these images before. Um, they may not know the meaning of death. A lot of parents have asked me, well, I haven't even talked to my child about death. And then they somehow saw the video, you know, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. where it's hard. But where would you say is the starting point in addressing what we may be seeing in the media? you know, in this past week, or even in, you know, other situations, obviously, this is not the first time that we've seen something like this. So yeah. how would you even begin to address it with a child? Yeah, I think that is a great question. Because a lot of parents are like, where do I even start to have this conversation, especially if there's multiple children in the home, and they're at different age levels. So the first thing I always say is to keep into consideration your child's developmental level, because the way you have this conversation with your five-year-old is very different than the way you're going to have it with your 13-year-old or your 15-year-old. And so you want to be mindful of how you're approaching the conversation based on where your child is developmentally. So the way you explain it to your six-year-old um, is you're going to you're not going to be so detailed in kind of the specifically what's happening, but your 15 year old is going to want all those details. They're going to probably know all the details. And so the, the conversation, I was reading something earlier and it talked about um, the ways in which kids interpret the, the news. So kids between the ages of three and five are really like interpreting the news like very literally. So they're seeing something and it's like, whoa, this is literal. This is happening now. This is ongoing and they can't really understand the context. They're not even thinking about context. And so um, you want to keep that into consideration. Also for kids who are like six to 11, they're viewing the news and hearing things in the media and now they're starting to like personalize it. So how's this affecting me? Is this going to happen to my family? Am I safe? And so they're starting to personalize it a lot more. And then older kids are starting to personalize it and, um, it might impact them in, in more ways because they're trying to understand like this is the world I live in and trying to kind of understand their place in all of it. And so really thinking about with younger kids, I would highly recommend keeping the conversation um, 
between you and your child and between trusted adults and eliminating media exposure. I talked a lot about this and I'm talking a lot about this throughout the week is that the news right now is a scary, very scary uh, thing for children because it's hard to understand what's happening. So limiting news exposure and not having your child watch the news um, by themselves. If you're in the room and you're watching the news or you're talking about it with your spouse or your partner or a friend on the phone, being mindful of what you're saying, um, unless you are going to be like sitting beside your child, interpreting what's happening, like play by play, being there to answer any questions, really just monitoring their, their, their exposure to what's happening. The likelihood and what's happening in the news, you don't want to limit their exposure to what's happening. You want them to know, but you want to kind of be able to help bring the knowledge to them in a way that they're going to understand the most. Um, in terms of them knowing, Nickelodeon actually has been airing a commercial that um, they have two. They have one where it kind of explains in a child-friendly like, way what's going on. Sesame Street is going to be on CNN on Sunday yeah. with explaining racism. And so the likelihood that your child knows what's happening is high. Like every they know. Um, and so you want to create a space for discussion and starting the discussion by saying, what do you know about what's happening? I know you've been hearing about uh, a murder. I know you've been hearing about protests. I know that you've been seeing this on your social media and starting the conversation and asking them what they know, which will help you kind of direct the conversation based on where they are developmentally. And then asking them if they have any questions and doing your best to listen to what they're saying, listening to what their body language is telling you. Um, I can't tell you how many of my patients I've been having this conversation with and more their body language tells me more than actually what they're saying. So being mindful of if they're getting tearful, if they're getting really tense, if their volume like decreases significantly, picking up on those things and helping um, to validate their emotional response and letting them know that you're here to listen and answer whatever questions they have and letting them be in the lead of the conversation. I love the way you approach it in terms of asking what they know first, right? Or what what are they aware of? Because it, that can vary also, right, be, by by age, meaning an eight-year-old, two eight-year-olds who could be the same developmental level, even not, one of them may be super affected by what they're seeing. And then the other one may be like, okay, well, I don't care. Um, or I don't know what this is. Do you, do you think it's important, like, if a child is not, just say you ask an eight-year-old, let's use that example, um, like, do you have any questions on what you're seeing? And if they say no, do you think, you kind of end that conversation or do you think it's an opportunity to open up another kind of avenue to say, okay, well, let's talk about it. If they, if they don't seem bothered by it. Mm -hmm. I think both. I think it's an opportunity to say, well, this is what happened. A man was, and I'm giving like an eight-year-old speech. There was a man who was killed by the police and many people believe based on kind of how you want to word it with your child, it was because of the color of his skin. Um, and that's why you're seeing a lot of people protesting right now. If I under, you're saying right now that you don't want to talk about it, but know that if you have any questions, if you start to feel any 
anything that you want to talk to me about, I'm more than welcome to um, have that conversation with you. So providing a little bit of the context for them and then leaving the space open so that they know that they can ponder that a little bit um, and come back to you when needed. What most likely will happen after you provide that context, they might have a question or they might still just be like, oh, I don't, uh, that's really not something that's registering me, but you've left it open as something that they can come back to. Um, and not just come back to when they're eight, you've now started a conversation that can be an ongoing conversation in your home for years to come. Right. Meaning that they have a safe space with you so that you started this conversation and now it's like, okay, anytime anything like comes up, they have you. That's, that's, that's a very, very, very important point. The one thing you said was, you know, obviously with the visual, if they saw obviously a, a uniformed police officer, um, of, even regardless of the color, but obviously there was a, um, obviously white and black, but seeing a uniformed police officer, which we are taught that we should respect police officers, firefighters, doctors, anyone, helpers, right? Mm-hmm. So how can we talk to kids about that? Meaning that, hey, we're seeing a person who we should respect that did something that was bad. Like, how can you approach those conversations? Yeah, that is such an important question and I think a, a, a question that people are grappling with across America right now. And I think that question differs depending on um, your racial background um, practically in America. So the way that a Black parent is having that conversation with their child is very different than the way a Caucasian parent is having that that conversation with their child. I think the, the messaging of you, there are people in this world who care about you and want to keep you safe is a message that all children should be ha- received. Like it is, uh, I think the right of children to be able to know that there are people here to protect us. And I think that all people should teach that um, people in uniform are here to protect us. Black parents have the burden of history Mm -hmm. Um, And history showing that although there are these people who are here to protect us, they they don't always protect us and they don't always um, they they don't they don't always have our best interest in heart at at heart. And it's has gone to the point where it's resulted in in death, depending on the age of their child. And so having a conversation with their child about what to do if they encounter a police officer or someone in authority in a way that they can interact with them um, in a way that is going to increase the likelihood that they will remain safe. And I always tell that's a hard it's people are calling it the talk. That's a hard conversation to have with your child. And as a clinician, I've been so mindful of respecting the fact that different parents are going to decide to teach and and have that talk in different ways. So some parents are literally giving their children a script, like exactly what to say when the police come to you, like put their hands up. My name is so-and-so. I live at X, Y, and Z. Some parents are just saying, make sure you be respectful. Make sure you ask for permission before you do things. Um And then on the other hand, for non-Black parents, I think um, the same thing, making sure that you are having a conversation with your child about 
this is someone who is here to theoretically keep you safe. Um, and then based on their age, you can start to introduce that historically um, they do keep people safe, but there are some populations and some people that um, they don't always keep safe. And what to do if you're with your Black friend or your friend of color and a police officer or someone in authority um, challenges them. Like, what are ways that you can use your privilege to help protect others is a conversation that you can start to have as your as your child gets older. So, I mean, this is, again, a systemic problem that the fact that we can't even give the same advice to every parent, it kind of breaks my heart, you know, because usually in pediatric medicine, I can give the same advice to everyone about how to take care of their kids, how to parent their kids. But with racial injustice, I completely agree with you. It's a different conversation depending on the color of your skin. And I I really appreciate you saying that. And I hope everyone listening, whatever skin color you are, especially if you are not, you don't have melanin in your skin, (laughs) that you understand that, especially if you are not black, because I, I know that I hear that. I actually, you know, hear it from from friends, from people, obviously this whole week. And even before this week, like I said, this is just bringing into light all the things that Black Americans are dealing with on the daily, the conversations with their little boys and little girls. And especially, I, I, t- I feel like it's a lot with my my patients that have told me a lot of the conversations they're having with their sons more than their daughters. I mean, women, Black women also face a whole different slew of prejudices, but the the, the Black men, the the little boys that are, you know, I'm seeing in my office that are amazing you know they're they're amazing boys and i'm like how is it that we're these parents are having to have this special conversation and all these other families don't even have to think of that that's not even a conversation that they're having at the dinner table or whatever they're having and that you said exactly is is privilege so it is a really hard conversation i have a infant son i don't even know how i would approach it you know people people have asked me in the office just out of just exhaustion right? They're like, what do I do? What do I say? And I tell them, you know, my personal stuff, but I don't expect them to do what I say. I'm like, look, you need to speak to your heart. I do. I do live a world of kindness where obviously I know this person did something bad. And I say, you know, I know police officers are good. Sometimes we have bad people do bad things and not all police officers are like that. He was just, he had something bad in his heart, but not everyone is like that. And that's just my way. That doesn't mean every parent is going to choose that, 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 those words, right? It's just also how my mother, um, an Indian American mother spoke to me about, you know, people who do bad things that are in power, right? And it's so important that people understand that it, it is a, it is different. And it's, it's sad that we have to parent that way. Yeah. And that's my hope that one day this can change and we don't have to think about how we're going to approach a police officer based on the color of our skin. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the follow-up question that a lot of adolescents are asking and even before adolescences, then if all police officers aren't bad, then why is everyone mad at the police? Um, and that's like a hard, that's like a hard question to answer because you want to explain that the the police for many right now just represent a system and not only just the police but the government and history like they're, they're just like the symbol and kind of what we have and so a lot of the anger is directed um towards them but i think that messaging of um there are people who there are police officers who 
um, and authority figures who 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 do care about you and who do want to keep you safe. Because just think about kind of the way you in, a child starts to interact with the world once they have this conversation with their child. Um, or once they have this conversation with the parent, the way they are going to interact with authority figures like then changes. And then I see this so often, especially in um, some of with some of my patients is that then the police officer, people of authority become like the target. So then it becomes your teacher is like a person of authority and kind of seeing as someone who is like against you. And so there are implications to how children navigate the world once this conversation um, is had. And so respecting that everyone is going to have this conversation very differently in your household. I, I always tell parents to come across with the message that I am doing everything in my power to keep you safe. I had this conversation. I talked about this on my live that I had this conversation with a group of parents and this mom was like, I, but I don't want to lie to my child. I don't want to lie to them and say that they're safe, but in reality, they're not. But the messaging is that as your parent, I'm doing everything to keep you safe. When you come out of this house, unfortunately, not everyone's going to have that best interest, but I'm keep trying to keep you safe and then really help your child identify other people in the community or in your space that also are there to keep them safe. And even you can even talk about protest that way. That's why these people are protesting because they are trying to make systematic changes that will keep everyone safe. And I think that can be had across households, no matter the color of your skin. Yeah. And I mean, what you're describing is kind of what we have to talk about with school shootings. Um, that same concept. And I mean, I know, thank God for COVID because there hasn't been a school shooting pretty much in the, in March for the first, for the first time in decades, but it's, it's in the same conversation of like, you know, I am your secure home. I am here for you. And it's not, yes, the child won't understand that. Okay. Well, I'm going to go out. Mommy's not obviously going to be there for me when I'm out, but it's a conceptual thing that I'm doing anything in my power. Obviously mommy's be there 24 hours a day. But I agree, kids do take to that. They understand the, okay, mommy and my teacher or, you know, the so-and-so is going to be the ones that help protect me. They don't need to know the what-ifs. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood explains in your podcast app that's understood explains and i think parents we have the what ifs right as adults we think about our kids and we're like oh my god what if this happens i send them here and this but we can teach our kids that hey because it doesn't it doesn't serve anything for their anxiety it doesn't serve anything but we you know obviously older kids may have formed their own um, worries and stuff like that but i completely agree with that that is an important concept that takes into you know different situations as well Now, Let your children bring up the what ifs, because um, that's going to, that their what ifs are their developmental level. So you provide basic information and let them bring up the what if this happens, yes. what if this happens and then you answer based on where they're at instead of um, kind of guiding the conversation, because you might be planting things into their mind that they're like, oh, that's a possibility. Um, and so really letting them bring up those what ifs. Completely agree, because yes, and I, I it's important for parents to hear that because most of us through COVID and through this, like everyone's anxiety has been through the roof. And so now as adults, we have, we're thinking about 10, 15 different things and your child may not be thinking of that. And why are we going to put the what ifs on them if they're not even thinking about it? I completely appreciate you saying that. Now you've brought up something else in the IGTV that you did, um, uh, you know, uh, yesterday or today um, about media. And, you know, I really, I, I, as a physician, also, I see a lot of stuff in the media um, in regards to health issues and whatever. How do you feel about media and their portrayal of what's happening with George Floyd and in general? What are your thoughts about media and bias? Yeah, the, the media is biased. Like, <laughs> um, and I think that we have to. I think this, if we think on a, if let's th- let's talk on a basic level about like cartoons. We start seeing like racial biases in television and media um, coverage when as soon as um, the opportunity arises. And so we're being fed with these biases like all the time. And so I think when we watch the news, we have to really watch with the lens of number one, this is someone's perspective. You can change your channels and just see one station is talking about one thing. The next station is talking about another thing. Um, And understanding from the lens of this is someone's perspective. And so I am getting a biased opinion of what's happening. And then you have to think about there's there's certain things that sell. Like there's certain um, if if I talk about looting over peaceful protests, my ratings are going to be higher. If I show images of black men looting versus images of people who um, don't look like them coming from out of town and doing the looting, that's going to change the dynamic of the story. The angry black person is the is the historical message that has been has been 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 spread. And so 
I think viewing the news with like, yes, there is bias. And another reason why you want to protect kind of what your child is seeing, because children can't filter out all that bias. As adults, we have, we're a little bit more savvy so we can understand, we understand the historical context. Um, and so we can kind of start to say like, okay, that's a little bit skewed, or I can tell that this is like a one-sided picture, but kids really can't do that. And so that's a, a really big reason why I really suggest monitoring how much your child is um, watching news. And it's also a great time to teach about bias, like using it for your older children, like as an example and, and a way of teaching, like, hey, I know that you've been seeing this on the media, but showing them other news outlets that have a different portrayal and starting the conversation of we all might be experiencing the same thing, but we're experiencing it in different ways. And when people talk about um, what they're experiencing, they talk about it from their perspective. And that's called bias and start the conversation. And you can have that conversation with your six-year-old and you can have that conversation with your 16-year-old. The only difference is going to be your choice in how you talk about it and your wording and how long you talk about it for. Um, but acknowledging it, I, I'm very big on being authentic with children because they're so children are so smart. Um, they're picking up on they're picking up on everything, even if we don't even recognize it. And they're internalizing it in some way, shape, or form. And so being authentic and truthful um, in a way that is appropriate for your child's developmental level. Oh, I agree. And you talked about, you know, turning it off for the children and also turning it off for the adults too. I, I, I think it's important. I, even again, this is coming on the backs of COVID where everyone was consuming news, I think more than they actually used to. Right. Meaning I, I'm not a big news person normally because of the bias. I, I find um, a few like BBC news or a few like middle ground type news com um, outlets. And I kind of use those kind of outlets before going to, you know, radio, you know, or sorry, uh, news stations that may be a little more on one end because you're also going to seek out what's called confirmation bias, right? Meaning if you have a belief, so let's use the example of a, someone who is racist, whether they think they are or they don't know, whatever. And you think, and I'm going to say it because I, I've heard it already, that you think that black lives don't matter. Okay. So now you are watching the news and you're seeing them looting and you're saying to yourself, oh, look at them. They're part of the problem. They're bringing this on themselves. This is the problem that I have. This is the problem because you, you have a bias. You are coming from a, a very, very, very non- unbiased place where you can say, oh yeah, I can see what's happening. And that's how you can check yourself. If you're saying, if you're not understanding what's happening right now, if you're not understanding why people are upset, why people are taking to the streets in peaceful protests, right? And not understanding the system issues that are there, you're going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's, you know, they shouldn't do that. And, oh, it's okay. Maybe he resisted. Okay. Even if someone resisted, it doesn't mean that uh, someone deserved their life lost. You know, like in that manner, when we, the video that came out, by the way, and this is why I love that cell phones are around now, because if those, if, can you imagine if that cell phone video can, never came out? And there are probably thousands of men and women across this country that are not getting due justice because there wasn't a cell phone around and it just went to the media or never went to the media as, oh, someone resisted and then they, you know, the doctor had, or uh, apologize, I'm done, done. then the police officer had to, you know, take action. Like, it's so sad to me. And it's, 
that's the problem with the with media and bias. Yeah, and, and I think um, I always talk to parents about teaching their children perspective taking um, because that's how you have adults who are able to say, you know what, hmm, this seems a little bit fishy because no one's taking the perspective of, of another person, even if it's just a little bit. One way to kind of, to I think as adults, to check ourselves is exactly what you just said. Am I agreeing with everything that I'm seeing right here on the television? If I am, that means that I am consuming something that is confirming all my biases um, and also not giving me the ability to kind of take into perspective what other people are experiencing. And you can teach your child perspective taking as early as they are born. Um, And I call it like emotion labeling. So, oh, mommy's feeling really sad right now, or I'm really happy about this, or your brother just did this. Aren't you proud of him? Like helping them understand that other people are experiencing the world alongside with them um, so that they can, um, and not just people who look like them or people in their community, but other people all over with different backgrounds, with different types of families who come from different places, who live um, in different spaces. You want to have them understand that I can take that perspective and, and, and know that they have their own experiences. Yeah, it is. And it's so important. And I'm happy we brought this up in this conversation because I know we're talking about navigating the, you know, the racial injustices, but obviously it was portrayed on the media. And so I think it's really important. And this is something that has always eaten me up, like even on even on social media. Right. Because social media is also a person running that social media account who has their own biases. So you have to really I, I have a rule with any media, anything you consume, which is whether it's on a TV or someone's Instagram, I need you to sit with it for 48 hours before you react on a public platform or even just with yourself. Why is because I need you to really think about it. I need you to see all the facts that come out, see what else comes out from it before you react. And I do this everything. So I saw the video, I think it came out on a Tuesday or Wednesday. I can't remember. Or I, I don't, it happened on a Monday, I believe. But I saw it two days later and I saw the video and I was like, oh my God. This is awful. For two days, I sat with it, meaning I sat with it. What I remember that is I was just waiting for everything coming out. I wanted to see. I saw all the media outlets. And then finally, I was like, what in the world is going on? And it's and before I went on my social media platform. Right. And it's not it's because I needed to just sit with my emotions with it. I needed to sit with the emotions that were coming out from the media outlets and also everyone flooding social media before I can come up with a how am I feeling about this? Right. And I think it's important that parents do that with themselves because the media, you're right, is is going to be biased. And we also are consuming it in a biased way. So I, I completely agree with that. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about was kind of moving into this is obviously a loaded, loaded, loaded section in conversation. How can we make meaningful long term changes for racial acceptance, equality. Like what is your opinion? What is your feeling? You have a platform here. I want to talk to you too, because I am exhausted and I know you are, and I just, I want to help change the next generation. What do you think we need to do? That is a, a, I think, number one, important questions to even ask. Um, So thank you for asking that. And I, and I think at number one, at making sure that question is continued to, to kind of come up. And that question comes up in a wide variety of spaces. And I think my personal um, 
and professional opinion about that. It, it depends on kind of how we're talking about. It. So I have like, how are we going to create this long lasting, um, these changes with children and adolescents and how are we going to do it as adults? When it comes to like parents and trying to create these changes um, with their children so that they can be sustained throughout their lifetime and then through generations, I think that there's a couple of things that we can start to do. Number one is to teach history um, and teach history in a way that is truthful about the experiences of all people in this country. And by doing that, um, it provides context. It provides the context for why certain things are happening, um, for why certain people are treated the way they are, why certain people live in certain conditions and other people don't. It provides a lot of context. And so as early as possible, just starting to teach some history. And there are a lot of resources and 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 books that you can kind of um, use, like based on developmental levels that start to introduce some of these things. Um, and not just relying on school to do the history teaching, because we know that we talked about bias earlier, um, the educational system is biased. And so you want to have a little bit of more control over the education that your child is getting. Um, also thinking about having like diverse images in your home, um, uh, and when you talk about buying, like as simple as buying dolls or toys for your child, instead of all your child's dolls being black or all of them being white or all of them looking like your child, diversify your child's dolls. Um, when you're buying books, making sure that they're different books from different cultural perspectives, making sure that your child is seeing in the things that you're helping them to consume, they're seeing diversity there. And so that when they go out into the world, um, because the, the, the reality is a lot of us live in communities where the people look like us and are like us in, in some way. And so you need to introduce that diversity intentionally so that when they're 16 or when they're 21 at college, that's not the first time that they're experiencing it. And so introducing diversity in terms of um, images, books, toys, what you watch on television as early as possible. Um, thinking about positive Black images. And so kids always have like people they look up to or people who they know contributed to society in great ways. And I think if we all sit back and think about it, the people that like automatically come to our minds very often are people who look like us, but people who have a similar background from us. So teaching your child, like there are other people who did similar things that are as equally as important that impact our life on that same level, but they look as they look different. And that starts to show your child that everyone is capable of achieving certain things. Um, then modeling in your speech and behavior, when you, when you talk about other people who, who are different from you, being mindful of the language that you use. Um, and, and it's the subtle, sometimes it's just the subtle things that you say, like those people or they do it like this. Um, being just mindful of the language that you use to um, discuss some of these things um, with your children. Um, and then acknowledging that people are different. Um, acknowledging that people are different, but at the same time, there's also so many similarities. So we are different. Um, and we are the same because of X, Y, and Z and acknowledging that. So you, you're you creating a space where, where they understand that, yeah, we're different. It's okay that we're different. And there's so many different ways that we can connect. Because when you can connect with people, you 
you care about them on a on a on a, on a different level. And so you want to help introduce your child's like points of connection as much as possible. Um, and then I think just trying to expose your child to different cultures, different um, different ways of doing things as much as possible and, and educating yourself um, and being active about seek. This is a great time, I think, in terms of like resources. There's been so many resources being shared like online, like everywhere you turn, so many resources. And so like using the opportunity to educate yourself so you can start to have intentional conversations with your children. This is not Making systemic changes in terms of race and race relations and racism is not something that we can passively do. It's something that needs to be intentional and it's something that needs to be active. And so as a parent, you need to take the same intentional and active role and it might take some coordination and and it's going to take effort. And it's ongoing, like you said. It's not, it's... And this week, you know, obviously, I know if you're you're on social media, but uh, people stop posting their regular content for the week to give the space to the Black American community to express their voice and express what's going on. And I was, you know, grappling with that. I'm like, well, okay, but I know it needs to be more than a week. Like, I I, I get it. Like, I, I understand, but I'm like, I need us to have this ongoing conversation. And you know, I know we're talking about race. It goes on. I I have another episode planned talking about injustices with able-bodied versus, you know, people who are, aren't able, able-bodied, um, LGBT issues. I mean, there, it, the list goes on and on about the oppression and inequalities that are in America and the world, right? You brought up two amazing points. One was the educational system. I completely agree with you. Depending on where you go, where you live, what taxes are funding your school, whatever it is, you're going to have a very different experience. I grew up in Southern California in a very diverse high school, very diverse elementary school, where every month we had a cultural diversity day. We, mm-hmm. we celebrated a different culture, and I'm talking every single culture on this <laughs> planet. I mean, I learned about everything, and it was so mm-hmm. important, right? So when, even though I didn't, yes, I didn't have those experiences one-on-one with those people, which I was, I wanted, but they just weren't in my community per se, when I got yeah. to college and I went to UCLA, which was a melting pot of, of diversity, I was welcome to that, right? Because I got yeah. some exposure. And a lot of my followers I know um, who are listening don't live in that diverse communities. And we'll talk about that. But it is extremely important that the parents, if they're not getting it in the school system, and especially if they think they are, they need to bring that into the home. And I agree. I, I go simple as the foods we eat. Why are we, why do we always have to eat the same? Like I eat everything and I, my son is going to eat every single type of food um, just to bring that in. And you said it perfectly about the stuff that we're consuming in terms of media. And that is why representation matters so much. And I don't think people understand that, you know, I'm, I'm Indian American. You are, I don't know if people even know you're, you're, you're black and you is uh my parents were actually born in Jamaica um and they we live I was born here um but I identify as like a black American and if you and I don't I don't know if my followers know this my parents were raised in Africa so they my mom was raised in Kenya and my dad was raised in Tanzania because there was a huge Indian population in Africa in the 1950s and it you know it's it's a very interesting thing but race issues have been something that have been a passion of mine for a long time and growing up I mean, I'm Indian and we never saw people that looked like us on, on mainstream cartoons. 
you know yeah for halloween i had to figure out okay what's the brown hair disney character that i can dress like i couldn't yeah. be cinderella because people would laugh at me because i don't have blonde hair and mm -hmm. i could only choose to be Belle or snow white and they're not even brown like yeah. come on and <laughs> It's it's sad, right? And I, I actually, as I grew up and start to understood, I actually had a lot of beef with Disney because I'm like, you know what? This is a kid thing. And why aren't they re representing multi-ethnic children, you know? And finally, they, they're getting with the program a little more. I mean, they could, everyone can do more, but I, I appreciate them trying. But as I grew up and I became older, I was like, wait, like, what is going on here? Like, why? So when, when people hear that representation matters and they, you know, in in cartoons, in Academy Award winning movies, it really has a huge impact on children. Yes, a massive impact. There is a famous um, doll study um, and it's with uh, Kenneth Clark and it's looking at like preferences. It's with um, black children and he introduces like two dolls and he asks them like, which character is good, which character is bad. And black children had started to already at the age of like three and four started to internalize based on like what they have been seeing in the media and the cartoons. They already started to um, identify the black doll that looked exactly like them as like the bad one and the white doll as the good one. And so that representation matters so much for people who are not seeing images of people who look like them. Because when you think about, I'm watching this cartoon or I'm watching this show and these people are doing all these great things and they have access to all these things, but none of them look like me. You're gonna start to internalize that on some level as that means it's not for me. And then the way that you interact with the world becomes a little bit different unless you have people or your context does not um, support that. So representation, if you think about why representation is really important, is because we know that when you see images of people who look like you in, in, on, in the media, in TV, that you know that you belong. And um, if you think about when everyone, children who are seeing everyone who, who does look like them, so they're watching cartoons, they're reading books, and everyone looks like them, they're, they are now navigating in a world where they are perceiving um, everyone to just be like them and how they speak to, um, relate to, connect with people who don't look like them. Now they have to kind of say, okay, I've never even seen this person in any of the things, this type of person in any of the things that I've consumed. And there's all this catching up that needs to get done. If we were in a space where representation truly mattered, children ideally would have had so much exposure to p other types of people, other types of cultures way before they are meeting others because of the things that they, they consume. So when we talk about why it's important to diversify the media, why it's important to diversify toys and uh, cartoons and TV shows and Disney, it's because psychologically these, the way that we are, um, primed to interact with the world is, is is really based on those early images yeah I, I i feel like it's i mean it should have come long time ago and it's coming slowly i agree with you um but it's it's sad that even to 2020 when there's a for me like a cartoon about um an indian girl uh mira the you know she it's on on disney whatever and i'm like wow like this is mira royal detective i'm like oh my gosh like finally there's like a little indian girl on on a cartoon it's it needs to be more and like you said it's important for the person 
who is relating to them because of the skin tone or how they look. But it's also important for people who may not look like that child, that cartoon character to create acceptance and diversity for that person. So like, you know, me looking at, or a, I'll just say a white person looking at a, car- a cartoon with a black lead character or an, uh, an Asian American lead character, it's so important for them to see that because they're like, oh, I love that character. And she's just like me, you know? Yeah. And I talk with parents a lot about the, especially if you, your child goes to a school or is in a community where everyone is like that, like being the, the advocate for bringing in diversity, that this idea of like diversity training or inclusion, I think it's become such like a thing, like everyone's like, we're doing diversity training. We're so diverse. Um, But in reality, it's so important for that, for there to be advocates for diversity in certain spaces. So if you notice at your child's school that the only time they're talking about Black people is during Black History Month, or you notice that the only time they are talking about Native people of America are is during Thanksgiving in the kind of the, the, the worst context ever, um, you want to call that out. Call it out for what it is as racist. And you want to make sure um, that your child is and your child will see that as like advocacy. Wow, my mom or my dad saw that this was missing in my school and I actively saw them trying to make a change to make sure that it was included, even though there was no one like that at my school. That's a great segue to the next question I had, which was how can we involve our school age kids um, in activism and what's going on right now? Yeah, that is an amazing question. Like there's different ways to advocate um, and there's different ways to be an ally. I think the 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 one of the most important things that we can do is to teach kids to speak up, to use their voice when they see something that's wrong. And so if you're at school and someone is teasing another person for the way they look or something they have, speak up, use your words to to speak up, especially um if you are in the position where it's not impacting you, because that starts to teach them about privilege um, and that there are certain times when you have certain privileges and you might always have that privilege and other people don't. And you can, from your space of privilege, use your voice to speak up um, for others. Um, I think also you can a lot of people are seeing like protest is the only way to be an ally or the only way to advocate thinking about as, as a parent, if you are going to donate to a cause. So say you're like, I'm going to donate to this um, relief fund, or I'm going to donate to this protest, or I'm going to donate to this community, involve your child in that. So we're going to pick something to donate to get to together. Like this is what they're about. This is what they do and involve your child in the, in the process. Um, you can have a conversation with them about how do you want to talk to your friends about this? I know that you're, they're probably already talking amongst themselves. And so having a conversation with them about if this comes up with you and your friends, how are you going to enter the conversation? What are some things you're going to say? Um, keeping in mind that in this family, we know that everyone has a right to life. We know that everyone um, has should have access to the things that other people do. Like, what are you going to say if, um, when this, if and when this, this comes up? 
So teaching them to use their voice and helping them to be a part of how you choose to be a part. If you're in a city where you can go to a peaceful protest, where it's going to be um, something that a child can be exposed to and not feel be significantly afraid, take them with you. Explain to them what's happening. Um, think about different, you can make a sign in front of your house. It's as easy as like putting a Black Lives Matter sign and taping it on your door. Um, and letting them know that there are so many different ways that you can enter into a conversation and, and start to make change. Yeah, and it starts so early, right? And I, I like it that you group it because in the under five, obviously under four, you're doing play, you know, play, meet, like what you're consuming is very important to incorporate the diversity. And then as they get older, you're still continuing that work with diversity, but then you're adding on this other layer of activism, which is totally age appropriate, like you said. And then now let's talk about like teenagers, because you mentioned in your IGTV about these teenagers or young adults that want to be involved in protests or, you know, what how, what would you say to a parent who's maybe hesitant about their child going to peaceful protests or being involved in this very, very important movement? Yeah, that is it's coming up this week so much. Parents like they're they're asking me to go, but I and I'm in New York, so this it's huge crowds and there's a lot of other things that go into your child going out into the city. There's a curfew at 8 p.m. Um so having I, th I think the question differs on what your answer is. So some parents are like, no, they're not going. Um, if your answer is like, no, your child is not going, I think immediately go into the conversation about other things that they can do to protest um, and being explicit about some of the reasons why. Um, I think for older kids, sometimes parents are just like, no, because I said no. Um, but being intentional about explaining why you don't want them to go and giving them alternatives because we don't want to silence their activism. You want them to know that it's, I, I commend you for wanting to go out there and advocate and wanting to go out there and, 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 and stand for a cause. Um, but there's so many different things that we have to think about. And I don't feel comfortable with, and you can list the reasons why that's going to differ from household, but being clear about that and then shifting conversation immediately. Like, what can you do instead? If you're going to allow your child to go and some parents are like, yeah, I'm going to let them go, but I'm really scared. Um, you can think about different things. I always suggest like with the media going with your child to these things, there's some of my teenagers like, I don't want to go with my parent. Like I want to go with my friends. And then I say, Maybe your friend, your parents can come, but they can be like 10 steps behind you and your friends and they always have an eye on you, but not like they won't interfere unless they become a safety concern. And if that is something, go ahead and do that. So you can protest, bring someone along with you so you have a buddy um, and let your child or your, your adolescent do their thing. Um, if you're going to let them go alone, which is the reality, some parents are letting their children go alone. That's okay also, but then you want to prepare them for what happens if tear gas comes out? What are you going to do if someone um, says something to you? What if you're in a group of people who start doing something that you know is wrong? Um, what if you're approached by the police? You have to have conversations, especially if you're thinking about <laughs> that now we're bringing race back into it, like how your child looks, what area they're coming from, where they're protesting. You're going to have to tailor that conversation to um some of the tools that they're going to need when they're out there protesting. And so if someone, um, if you get detained by the police, don't talk to anyone unless you call me first, make sure they're calling me. If your friends are doing something and you're uncomfortable, 
meet me at X, Y, and Z spot and I will pick you up from there. Make sure you call me when you get to the protest. Check in with me by text message at X, Y, and Z time. Let me know when you're leaving. You want to place the safety precautions there um, so that they know how to to navigate it when, when they are there. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. It's not just the, yeah, go ahead. Um you have to think about safety. You have to also think about when they come back. It's not just, hey, how was it? It was, what did you see? What do you have any questions? Mm. How did you feel when you were there? You want to process how that experience was for them, just like you would process what they're watching on on the news. Such great points, because that's the long-term educational component, right? That's the, the, you went to an experience, you did anything, and now you're back, and I want to talk to you about it. And it opens up, like you said earlier on in this conversation, that, that comfort and that safe home, right? That I'm going to go explore the world, whatever age I am, and I can come home to this safe space where I can talk to my parent, and they're going to help me, educate me if I was scared, if I was confused, if I want to pursue other activism, you know, I was talking to one of my best friends. We have a group chat going on about this. They're all in the medical field and we're all super diverse, by the way. It's like really awesome. And we were talking about it. And one of my friends was like, you know, in her church group, everyone is really getting into activism now. Um, but basically in the last six, like few months, especially obviously with what's happening, they, they want to pursue careers of activism. And I'm like, 2020 is looking like a piece of crap, but it's bringing, I think, a new generation of activism and a new generation of understanding of what we need to change. So in many ways, maybe we needed this year. 
Yeah, yeah. And and I think where's the learning opportunity? Yeah, 2020, every minute we're like, wait, what was happening? But there's so many learning opportunities in this. Let's let's take these opportunities to teach and not just teach about how to deal with the moment, but how to make long lasting change. And I think with a lot of this stuff, I was talking about this a lot with COVID about like if there is um, like another wave um, and the same, I think conversation can be applied to like if and when the reality is like when there's another incidence of racial police brutality, what are the, the, the skills and tools that we can use that we are learning now and just implement them right away so that we're not having a conversation about how to have uh, uh, how to talk about race with our children. It's, I already know how to talk about race with my children. Let's continue that conversation and continue to move in, in into making like systematic changes. And so we're not just learning now, we are set, giving ourselves like all the tools and skills that we need to make this something ongoing and a way that we're going to approach other um, situations. Oh, this is so great. And, you know, I, I have a few more questions. And then I also want to do some questions that some of my followers asked. And the big question, another loaded one is, you know, we're talking all about this. People are like, well, okay, so some people just don't get it that this is a huge deal. And it's a public health issue. Racism is a public health issues, which is why you're hearing all the doctors get on and talk about it on social media. And so it is a 100% in so many ways, not even just health issue, it is vital for children to not feel racism. And can you speak to what the long-term emotional, I mean, not even just emotional, but the long-term impacts of racism? What what would be some things that parents should consider when they're like, well, does this really matter? Because it does. <laughs> yeah. We know that um, being subject, number one, being subjected to generations of racism. And we think about that as like collective trauma. It's traumatic. And I think calling it what it is, it's not just an experience or just like something, a day to day. It's a, it's trauma. Um, and we know that people who experience trauma, especially ongoing trauma, have a wide variety of um, negative mental health um, outcomes, increased anxiety, increased depression, PTSD. We know PTSD comes with hypersensitivity, um, paranoia, sleep disturbances, eating disturbances, mood concerns, interpersonal difficulties. But I could go on and on and on and on, but it is um, traumatic. And I think that um, the event that we're experiencing now with George Floyd's death and and, and a lot of other, um, Breonna Taylor, um, there's so many other Black lives that have been lost, but the the idea that this is eventually going to pass and, and there's going to be something else in the news, the, the historical trauma of racism for a group of people is not going to end. For So for some people, once the news about this finishes, they're not going to have to, unless they choose to, like this doesn't even need to be a conversation. Um, but for other people, they're still going to go to schools that are under-resourced. They're still going to have microaggressions um, when they go to school or their workplaces. They're still going to not see representation in the media. And so it's ongoing trauma. And if we think about not having any respite from that, and we know what the psychological impacts of that are, um, 
just compounded over time, what that means for a group of people who are now adults who are starting to, to, to create healthy families, who want to um, be navigate the relationships with their coworkers, who want to feel like they um, matter in spaces. I have an adult client. I also see uh, early adults. Um, and today we talked a lot about imposter syndrome. And the the idea of being in a space and not feeling like you belong there or you just kind of happenstance there. Like that's also a, 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 a mental impact of, of racial trauma over time. And so the just like the medical um, implications, we know just your ability to fight off disease, your the, your exposure, just like there's a plethora of medical um, outcomes, the same thing for psychological. Um, and when there are groups of people who interact with the world in that way, um, and there's no one advocating for them on the outside, or there's no one recognizing that, or there's no one fighting for it, 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 it compounds it and it, and it just makes it hard to, to heal. It's, it's just ongoing grief. And it's yeah. like, and, and, you know, with what's going on with the Black Lives Movement, and it's obviously been going on, like you said, for generations. And I'm, I, my worry, and I hope, and I, I'm a very hopeful person that it does not end here, right? And I, and I, I worry about that. I agree with you so much that you said this earlier, that this is an ongoing work. This is what we need to do to make serious change, changing yeah. how we view the world as adults, changing how we talk to our children and really getting out there and causing systematic changes with how we fund police, how we equip them. Why do they need to be equipped with so much, you know, like meaning so much manpower where they can yeah. perform brutality, right? It's a whole conversation. And some people are uncomfortable with these conversations, especially when you go to a systematic, you know, changing how we may have to live our lives in our, you know, as a system. And it's yeah. important though, because of what you said that why, and there was an amazing video that went around, which I cannot remember the lady's name right now. And I, I apologize to everyone listening, but it was a white woman, older white woman. And she asked a group of white people in the yeah. room. I don't know if you saw this. She's like, stand up. If you would like to switch places with a black American, she basically said, if you would like their life, why don't you stand up right now? No one stood up. And she's like, this is the answer. You're not standing up because you know, that there is oppression. And that is it. Like, that is it. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I'm grateful that most of my followers are getting it. They, they understand. I'm grateful for this community, but I I'm seeing that people just are not understanding the importance of this movement. Now, five years ago, seven years ago, um, when all these cases have come out and all the millions of cases are probably not making it to the media. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and when people ask, like, why this level of protest, why this level of anger it's exactly what you just said, because this has been happening for generations and generations and generations. And so we, people have tried kneeling at football games and got a lot of pushback. People have tried peacefully protesting. People have tried um, making sure that they're writing letters to their congressmen. We've, we've tried everything. And so now um but we need to get attention. And so that's another great way to kind of explain it to your adolescents. I think that's the adolescent type of conversation. Um, but you're seeing frustration and anger and sadness and people just, ha I think, already being at their wit's end, but now understanding that th there's only so much I can do. 
Um, and so I want to make sure that my voice is heard in the loudest way possible. And I, for time purposes, I, there was a few questions. Actually, we talked a lot of the questions I got, we actually already answered, but the one question I wanted to close off with before we wrap up is how can someone, this was asked on my, on my Instagram, how can someone approach family members saying racist things about myself, you know, about mother or father or their child, like in the family, right? Because we get it that social media, maybe you can block it out, but you have a family member who is saying racial, either it's a microaggression or it's a full out racial comment. How can you approach that? Or how would you recommend a family approaching that? That is so common. And I think it's, I think people are talking about it so much in the last week that I was literally just watching, I think on TikTok, you know, all the adolescents are all about TikTok, <laughs> um, that uh, there was a young woman on TikTok, a teenager, like hysterically crying because she's like, my family, I need to move out of this house because my family are, are they're, they're being, they're saying all these racist things and, and I'm getting all these like microaggressions. I think there's a few, we can talk about that in two ways. So if you're the recipient of that, and also if you're observing that. If you are observing your family members uh, making racist comments, especially if your child is around anytime, calling it out, that was, um, that wasn't really a nice thing to say. That was racist. These are the reasons why. Um, and making it a point to not just let it happen. In order to combat racism, a lot of people need to be called out. And so calling it out and setting boundaries around it, especially boundaries with, especially as it pertains to your child. So if you're going to speak that way, then I won't be able to have my child around you during these times. If you're going to speak that way, then we're going to need to leave. If you're going to watch this while I'm here, then I'm going to have to be in another room until the conversation changes. Call it out and set boundaries. If you are experiencing microaggressions or blatant racism from your family, I think you can, number one, you want to make sure that you're protecting your physical safety and you're protecting your emotional safety. And sometimes that means creating boundaries that are tough within the context of families when you talk about like separating yourself and distancing yourself. But sometimes you might need to say, when you say this, it makes me really uncomfortable because you're talking about the color of my skin or you're talking about the way that I interact with the world and it really hurts my feelings. And if you continue to do that, then I am going to need to not be around you. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, identifying a family member or someone in the space who could potentially have that conversation for you. So if you know that my grandma talks like this, but my aunt doesn't and they have a good relationship, talking to your aunt, hey, when I'm around grandma and she says these things or these things come up, it makes me really uncomfortable and it makes me not feel safe in this space because it's really not safe. It's not emotionally safe. Um, can you please talk to her about it? And because if it continues, then I'm going to need to take these actions to protect myself and really framing the, the boundaries that you're setting as I'm setting these boundaries up for myself and for my child or for my family as the means, not because we don't love you, not because we don't want to spend time with you, but because we need to protect ourselves um, and, and, and framing that the conversation that way and, and finding support in um, because it's hard to be estranged from your family. Um, so finding support from people who can kind of help mm. navigate what it means to, to, to distance yourself from your family for racial, for racial reasons. 
And yeah, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, I hear and I hear it in the South Asian community too. the these small microaggressions that build up and build up. And, you know, it's it's it, it is important to put put the boundaries there and not even if even if it's not directed immediately or personally to you, right? Like we talk, obviously this, this mother asked if like they're saying personally or to their child, but if it's just like you said about a race in general, that maybe not be in the room. Like it's really important because I, I commonly, what I hear is, Oh, they were just joking. I'm like, you said it. So it's obviously not a joke and it's not funny. Like it's really not funny to talk about people that way because we wouldn't want to be talked about that way. And I agree with you. Like, I am so, I call, I call out a lot of people like in my personal life too. I'm like, that wasn't nice. And they're like, Mona, you need to lighten up. I'm like, no, but it wasn't nice. Like, why are we, why are we making fun of people at their misery or at their, you know, at just because of who they are? And it's not funny. Like, and I'm totally have a sense of humor, but there's a place for it, you know? So I really appreciate that because it is hard to navigate that. Um, I, we could talk for like two or three hours, but I know, you know, maybe I'll have to have you back on again and we can talk about all the other, you know, obviously amazing things you do. What is, you know, your final message you have? And honestly, before I ask that, I really want to ask you, like, how are you doing this past week? Thanks for asking that. <laughs> um, I think this week has been, it's been hard. Today we had a work meeting and we were going around and they were like, how's everyone feeling? And when they got to me, I was like, I'm just feeling really unproductive and I'm feeling like out of it and drained. I think that because personally, um, the I, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the community that's being most impacted by this right now. And so I'm seeing Im an image of a Black man being murdered repeatedly on television. That Black man looks like the men in my life that I love the most. Um, and, and my mind like automatically goes there, um, kind of navigating how to channel what I think I was experiencing a lot of anger. Um, and I also shared today that like anger is not like a, is, I would it's like out of character for me. Like it's that I, it takes a lot to get me there. Um, and so when I experience like intense anger, I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? And I was experiencing a lot of that. And so having to like sit with myself, like Tasha, whoa, like you're really angry, and like processing like where that has come from, and kind of what I'm gonna do about that, and deciding like what I'm gonna what conversations I'm gonna engage with, if I'm gonna go to a protest or not, like how am I going to be an advocate? I think has been draining for me in the last week. And then on top of that, I know that I do work where I can't just act like this is not happening. Um, I know that I do work and have a platform where I have to bring this up and kind of doing that from a space of of fatigue on my end um, has been a lot. I think I've been been very intentional about keep taking care of myself, even if if it's in like small ways throughout the day. Um, so I like make sure I get my workout in. This morning I went for like a walk. It was a twenty minute walk, but it was a walk. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of where I am and and it might change like when I'm off this call, it might change in the morning. Cuz I think as for black professionals, I think there's the so there's the layer of how you're dealing with personally. There's the layer of if you work with a population or if you have a platform where you feel the need to address it. And then there's the layer of processing this because everyone's trying to process this. There's the, the layer of processing it in space in your workspace. Um, 
where like there's this balance of like, I want to keep it professional. Like these are my colleagues. These are also people who are not experiencing this in the same way as me. And that burden of like being the represent, like represent, like representative. I think for me, I've been very intentional about like, I don't need to join every single process conversation about this, like in a professional space, because that's draining for me. (laughs) It's draining for me to sometimes even like listen to other people process um, from, from like their privileged stance and allowing myself to say like, you know, I'm going to just not join this meeting right now, or I'm going to excuse myself, or I'm just going to listen has been, has been helpful. So I think my emotions have been all over the place and it's not the first time. And so, and that's another thing, like, it's not the first time that I've had to and I think Black professionals, Black, black psychologists, social workers in the mental health, that's not the first time that we've had to to do this. It's just like, okay, again. Um, and it's great. I think there's been so many times during the week where my eyes have like welled up with tears and I've had to like get it together um, because of like things that my patients have said, things that their parents have said, just thinking about why I do the work that I do. I was saying this earlier that it's not just it's not just you you have ADHD or you are depressed and I need to give you these coping strategies so you can like get along better with your family and friends. It's you are a black teenage boy and you're going to be a black man and I need to give you some skills so that these symptoms don't get you in trouble one day or that or these not even get you in trouble, get you murdered. <laughs> um that you're, you can control your impulsivity, that you know how, to, yeah, I've just been all over the place. I've been having in New York City, and I think all around, um, like especially in urban areas, a lot of times when children are having like a lot of behavioral difficulties, the school calls um, the ambulance. And when you call the ambulance, do you know who the first people who come are? The police. I do like flashbacks of when my patients get the police, I call it getting the police called on them and like what that means. And now they're seeing these images. Um, so it's been a rough week. I think it's been a rough week in terms of just trying to remember that I still have um, like work to do. And then at the same time, still remembering that it's equally important for me to process this on a personal, personal level. And so I've been telling people, just take care of yourself. <laughs> well, I, I sincerely appreciate you. I appreciate you for so many reasons. One, like you, you put into, into kind of those groups that you are personally going through this. And mm-hmm. while you are personally going through it, you are still using your platform. You're, you know, obviously your Instagram, you're still using your platform as a psych- clinical psychologist and you're still being a helper when you are exhausted too. That is yeah. the ultimate empathy and the ultimate sacrifice that you are making. And that is why I'm really grateful that you were able to come on today because I know this was short notice. I know you're exhausted. And I kept asking you, I'm like, are you sure you want to talk about this? Because, because I know, I know the emotional impact any, our jobs make, but I also know the extra extreme extra layer that's being added on because you're personally dealing with this. Right. And so I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time after your very long day, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to talk to me so that I can, I can, uh, we can educate, you know, the listeners, what would be your final message to everyone listening? Um, my final message, I think it's twofold. 
I think my final message is when it comes to your children, your adolescents, the young adults, whether you are a parent, a teacher, a therapist, a nurse, a doctor, or aunt, an uncle, a grandmother, whoever, if you have contact with a young person, make sure that you are starting conversations about race, about racism, about differences, about systematic racism as early as possible. And make sure you're doing it in a way that's ongoing. Like it's not just a one-time conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. Um, And then in your adult life, outside of interacting with children, thinking about the spaces that you frequent um, and the power that you have in certain spaces in terms of um, hiring, in terms of funding for certain things, in terms of how you use any platform you have, in terms of how you talk with your church group, your, your social organization, how you show up in certain spaces and how you bring these conversations to those spaces. My message is is bring those conversations. Make sure you're having the difficult conversations about why it's important to um, diversify your student, your the, the, a group of students that you're taking in. Why it's important to fund certain organizations. Why it's important to um, show certain movies at a movie night versus others. Your book club. Why should we introduce this book into our book club versus another book? Like bring these conversations into all um, parts of your life because that is how we make change and for those and recognizing your privilege that when you have I think we talk about white privilege when we talk about white privilege we talk about socioeconomic privilege there are certain privileges educational privilege there are certain privileges that will allow you to bring this conversation into spaces and so use that privilege widely. Dr. Brown I am so glad I met you I it's like fate that brought us together it was such a great conversation. And I, I, we could have talked for a lot longer, but then I really want to just give this kind of bread and butter that, again, people really, really, I think will really understand and resonate with this because the words you say and your passion behind it, it's just so meaningful. I, oh, I wish we could talk forever. And I know we're going to continue this conversation in many, um, you know, in, in the future. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in for this very important bonus episode. I felt like I really wanted to do this just because we need to continue this conversation past this week, past this day, past this year. This needs to be ongoing work that we do as adults, ongoing work we do with our children, and ongoing work we do in our communities to truly impact change for the long run. I appreciate you listening to this episode. If you found it helpful, please share it on social media, write a review. I cannot wait to talk more about this in the coming months. I have another episode planned um, with an author of a book uh, talking about sensitive quote unquote issues with children, including racism, uh, including other prejudices. So I really, really hope this resonated. I hope this helped you. And thank you again, Dr. Brown, for being here. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Continue doing the work. Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. 
Correct. Sometimes I'll wear my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, wherever you listen to podcasts.